One of the best jokes I ever heard was a religious joke by the British stand-up comedian Emo Phillips. And the joke goes like this. Once I saw this guy on a bridge about to jump, I said, don't do it. He said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? Baptist, he said. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Northern Baptist. Me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him over. Now, I admit that that joke is pretty off color, but there's a ring of truth to it. As anyone who has spent any time in church knows, we Christians often disagree, and we're not always good at handling our disagreements. And modern Christians are not the first to deal with conflict and disagreement. The early church did as well. In Acts chapter 15, we read the story of the, the first great conflict in the church, a conflict, a disagreement so severe that it threatened to divide them. But somehow they found a way to come to a common decision. And for centuries, Christians have viewed Acts 15 as a model for how to manage conflict and disagreement in the church. So in this session, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to look at Acts 15 and ask, what does this have to teach us today about how we discern and make decisions together as a church? Uh, we can begin by summarizing what happens. And I'd like to summarize what happens by dividing this story into three acts, beginning with Act 1, which I'm calling the conflict. Now, we read about this conflict in the opening verses of chapter 15. Here's what we read in Acts 15, verse 1. Now, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is the source of the disagreement. Paul and Barnabas, remember Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch with some Gentile Christians. When all of a sudden some other Jewish Christians show up and they say, well, you have to be circumcised which is really a shorthand for saying, if you really want to be one of us, then you need to adopt all the customs of the Mosaic Law, or in other words, you need to become Jewish first. Now, Paul and Barnabas react strongly to this. Uh, Luke describes their response as no small dissension and debate. I like how Eugene Peterson puts it in his paraphrase of this passage. He says, Paul and Barnabas were up on their feet at once in fierce protest. So because of this disagreement, Paul and Barnabas and some others are sent to Jerusalem to consult with the apostles and elders there. And that brings us to Act 2, the council. Now, a number of things are not really clear from Luke's telling, 
Who precisely is there, for instance, we don't know. Luke says that it's apostles and elders, but he doesn't tell us precisely who these apostles and elders are or how long this council lasted. What we do know is that Paul spoke about what God was doing among the Gentiles, how God had given them the Holy Spirit and cleansed their hearts by faith. And then Paul goes on to argue that both Jews and Gentiles alike are saved through the grace, through the gift of the Lord Jesus. And then James, who seems to be acting as a leader among the apostles in Jerusalem, James stands up and speaks. And he says that God's activity among the Gentiles is clear, not only from what Paul has said, but what Peter already testified about what happened with Cornelius. And then James points out that this, in fact, fulfills the prophecy that was spoken by the prophet Amos about how the Gentiles, the nations, were going to be included in God's people. And then James goes on to say that because of this, the church should not require Gentiles to be circumcised, only to avoid sexual immorality and to avoid eating things offered to idols or things that have been strangled or with their own blood. And after James' speech, we read the third act of what takes place here, the conclusion. Now, it appears that James's speech was persuasive because the council of apostles and elders renders its conclusion in the form of a letter that's sent with Paul and Barnabas and some others back to Antioch. And here's what the letter says. Here's the conclusion that they come to that we read in verse 29. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. So that's what happens in three acts. This disagreement, this conflict is fierce. It threatens to divide the church. But in the end, they come to a common decision and the mission continues. And the question is, how does this help us today? Uh, to start with, I think it's worth noting one of the common ways that this story has been misapplied in recent years. And one of the reasons that Acts 15, the story of this Jerusalem council, as it's often called, one of the reasons it's attracted so much attention among modern Christians is because it, it seems to provide a pattern for how to adapt and how to change beliefs according to a new situation. After all, isn't this what happens? God does something new by including the Gentiles. And at first, it seems that the Jewish Christians are resistant to this because it seems to go against biblical commandments. But then they relent. They change their beliefs. A number of Christians have argued in recent times that this is a pattern the church should continue to follow today, especially when it comes to disagreements in the church over beliefs about marriage or sexuality. Now, after all, today, they say, the church faces a new situation, not unlike that of these Christians. And perhaps this is God doing a new thing and the church needs to adapt and change its beliefs accordingly. Uh, here's how the Anglican Bible scholar Christopher cites. Here's how he summarizes this interpretation of Acts 15 and how it's often applied today. Here's how Seitz puts it. 
God gave the law. Jewish Christians in Acts then set it aside because they were prompted by the Holy Spirit. And by analogy, so too we now set aside whatever scriptural injunction in Old Testament or in New was previously held by the church because the Spirit is leading us into 21st century new truth. Seitz calls this the evolutionary interpretation. But as he points out, this is a serious misreading of what's taking place in Acts 15. These Jewish Christians are not, in fact, setting aside Old Testament scripture. Uh, to the contrary, what happens here is actually an attempt to read the Old Testament scripture faithfully in the light of what God is doing in Christ and by the Holy Spirit. First, to see this, note the way that these Christians make sense of the welcome of the Gentiles. Note that this is done by appeal to the Old Testament prophets. James says that this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And James defends his recommendation by saying, quote, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, far from dismissing the relevance of the Torah to this new situation, what James is saying is that the fact that the Old Testament scriptures are already being read in cities around the Mediterranean world, throughout the Roman Empire, that this shows that these scriptures are not just for Jews, but they're for Gentiles also. And finally, notice what instruction the council actually settles on as to how these Gentiles should apply the Mosaic law. They give them two instructions. Number one, don't eat things that have been sacrificed to idols, avoid idol sacrifice in other words, and don't eat things with blood or that have been strangled. And number two, that they should abstain from sexual immorality. Now, why these two specific injunctions? Are James and this council essentially throwing out most of the Mosaic law and just arbitrarily keeping a couple moral teachings that seem good and reasonable to them? No, that's actually not what's happening. There is in fact a reason and it's a scriptural reason that they choose these two to highlight. If you read the book of Leviticus in the Mosaic Law, there's a distinction made in Leviticus between laws that are required of Israelites, Israel as a nation, and laws that also apply to what Leviticus calls strangers and sojourners living among Israel. In other words, non-Israelites. Now, in Leviticus chapter 17 and 18, a number of the laws that are given apply not only to the Israelites, but also to the stranger and sojourner. And what these laws are about are instructions about avoiding things that have blood in them, idol sacrifice, and about sexual immorality. So you see, what James and what these other apostles and elders are doing is actually seeking to apply the teaching of Scripture in a new situation, in the light of what God is doing in Christ in the Spirit, but also by faithfully reading the Scripture and reading 
and understanding their situation in continuity with the Old Testament. So if the Jerusalem Council, what happens here in Acts 15, teaches us anything about decision-making, then it is certainly not that the church may set aside Scripture when it faces new situations. Quite the opposite. If anything, new situations require us to read and reflect on the Scriptures even that much more diligently and carefully. So that's one lesson that we can draw from this story. But there's another lesson as well. This isn't just an example of how the Bible should guide the church. It's also an example of how the church has tended to read and interpret the Bible together. Uh, Ten years ago, there was a sociologist and scholar of religion by the name of Christian Smith who wrote a book called The Bible Made Impossible. And in this book, he argued what he called against what he called biblicism, which was a term that he used to describe how the Bible is often read and interpreted by many Christians in America. And he talked about how Christians in America tend to read the Bible in very individualistic ways. In other words, the Bible is clear and I can interpret it just fine by myself. And the result of this approach, the result of this biblicism, as Christian Smith calls it, is what he termed pervasive interpretive pluralism, which is really a fancy way of saying that opinions about what the Bible means and what it commands seem to be as many and varied as are the Christians that read it. And because of this, the Bible's important role in leading Christians into common consensus and making decisions together has seem to be rendered impossible. Now, parenthetically, this is also why Christian Smith chose to leave the evangelical church in in which he was raised and become Roman Catholic. But the approach that he describes about each individual Christian interpreting the Bible for himself or for herself, that's not what we find when we look in the book of Acts. These early Christians, they they took Scripture with the utmost seriousness, and they read it very carefully. But they didn't do it as individuals, reading just by themselves. They did it in community. They did it together as the church. And when a disagreement arose, they came together, and they took counsel together to try to seek the truth. And of course, Acts 15 is not the only time this has happened. All throughout Christian history, we see that Christians have come together. Often, Christian leaders, bishops, have come together during times of disagreement to think and talk together about Scripture, to try to come to a common understanding. Now, of course, not all of these meetings have been able to produce a unified single decision like this one. And not all of these meetings have been recognized by the rest of the church as being led by the Spirit in the way that this one was. But on the whole, this is how Christians have tried to make decisions, by coming together in council, reading and discerning scripture together as a community, or as the South African Archbishop Desmond Tutu once put it, when asked about what it is that holds Anglicans together, his simple response was, we meet. And when we read the book of Acts, we can see that this has always been the case. 
The church has not always agreed, but it has found ways to resolve its disagreements and seek the right way forward in the light of Scripture. And today, of course, Christians continue to be divided over many disagreements. And some seem to have set aside the authority of Scripture for new truths, as Christopher Seitz put it. But that's not true for the majority of the church around the world. Today, Christians continue to meet. They continue to form councils. They continue to reason over Scripture together because that is how the church resolves conflict. And that is how the mission of the church continues to move forward.